Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 74, The Sperm Whale's Head, Contrasted View. Here now are two great whales, laying their heads together. Let us join them and lay together our own. Of the grand order of folio leviathans, the sperm whale and the right whale are by far the most noteworthy. They are the only whales regularly hunted by man. To the Nantucketer, they present the two extremes of all known varieties of the whale. As the external difference between them is mainly observable in their heads, and as a head of each is this moment hanging from the Pequod's side, and as we may freely go from one to the other by merely stepping across the deck, where, I should like to know, will you obtain a better chance to study practical cytology than here? In the first place, you are struck by the general contrast between these heads. Both are massive enough in all conscience, but there is a certain mathematical symmetry in the sperm whales, which the right whales sadly lacks. There is more character in the sperm whale's head. As you behold it, you involuntarily yield the immense superiority to him, in point of pervading dignity. In the present instance, too, this dignity is heightened by the pepper and salt color of his head at the summit giving token of advanced age and large experience. In short, he is what the fishermen technically call a gray-headed whale. Let us now note what is least dissimilar in these heads, namely, the two most important organs, the eye and the ear. Far back on the side of the head and low down, near the angle of either whale's jaw, if you narrowly search, you will at last see a lashless eye, which you would fancy to be a young colt's eye, so out of all proportion is it to the magnitude of the head. Now, from this peculiar sideways position of the whale's eye, it is plain that he can never see an object which is exactly a head, no more than he can one exactly astern. In a word, the position of the whale's eyes corresponds to that of a man's ears, and you may fancy for yourself how it would fare with you did you sideways survey objects through your ears. You would find that you could only command some 30 degrees of vision in advance of the straight sideline of your sight, and about 30 more behind it. If your bitterest foe were walking straight towards you with dagger uplifted in broad day, you would not be able to see him any more than if he were stealing upon you from behind. In a word, you would have two backs, so to speak, but, at the same time, also two fronts, side fronts. For what is it that makes the front of a man? What, indeed, but his eyes? Moreover, while in most other animals that I can now think of, the eyes are so planted as imperceptibly to blend their visual power so as to produce one picture and not two to the brain. The peculiar position of the whale's eyes, effectually divided as they are by many cubic feet of solid head, which towers between them like a great mountain separating two lakes and valleys, this, of course, must wholly separate the impressions which each independent organ imparts. The whale, therefore, must see one distinct picture on this side and another distinct picture on that side, while all between must be profound darkness and nothingness to him. Man may, in effect, be said to look out on the world from a sentry box with two joined sashes for his window. But with the whale, these two sashes are separately inserted, making two distinct windows, but sadly impairing the view. This peculiarity of the whale's eyes is a thing always to be borne in mind in the fishery, and to be remembered by the reader in some subsequent scenes. 
A curious and most puzzling question might be started concerning this visual matter as touching the Leviathan, but I must be content with a hint. So long as a man's eyes are open in the light, the act of seeing is involuntary. That is, he cannot then help mechanically seeing whatever objects are before him. Nevertheless, anyone's experience will teach him that though he can take in an undiscriminating sweep of things at one glance, it is quite impossible for him, attentively and completely, to examine any two things, however large or however small, at one and the same instant of time. Never mind if they lie side by side and touch each other. But if you now come to separate these two objects and surround each by a circle of profound darkness, then, in order to see one of them in such a manner as to bring your mind to bear on it, the other will be utterly excluded from your contemporary consciousness. How is it, then, with the whale? True, both his eyes in themselves must simultaneously act. But is his brain so much more comprehensive, combining, and subtle than man's, that he can at the same moment of time attentively examine two distinct prospects, one on one side of him and the other in an exactly opposite direction? If he can, then it is as marvelous a thing in him as if a man were able simultaneously to go through the demonstrations of two distinct problems in Euclid. Nor, strictly investigated, is there any incongruity in this comparison. It may be but an idle whim, but it has always seemed to me that the extraordinary vacillations of movement displayed by some whales when beset by three or four boats, the timidity and liability to queer fights so common to such whales, I think that all this indirectly proceeds from the helpless perplexity of volition, in which their divided and diametrically opposite powers of vision must involve them. But the ear of the whale is full as curious as the eye. If you are an entire stranger to their race, you might hunt over these two heads for hours and never discover that organ. The ear has no external leaf whatever, and into the hole itself you can hardly insert a quill. So wondrously minute is it. It is lodged a little behind the eye. With respect to their ears, this important difference is to be observed between the sperm whale and the right. While the ear of the former has an external opening, that of the latter is entirely and evenly covered over with a membrane, so as to be quite imperceptible from without. Is it not curious that so vast a being as the whale should see the world through so small an eye, and hear the thunder through an ear which is smaller than a hare's? But if his eyes were broad as the lens of Herschel's great telescope, and his ears capacious as the porches of cathedrals, would that make him any longer of sight or sharper of hearing? Not at all. Why then do you try to enlarge your mind? Subtilize it. Let us now, with whatever levers and steam engines we have at hand, cant over the sperm whale's head so that it may lie bottom up. Then, ascending by a ladder to the summit, have a peep down the mouth. And were it not that the body is now completely separated from it, with a lantern we might descend into the great Kentucky mammoth cave of his stomach. But let us hold on here by this tooth, and look about us where we are. What a really beautiful and chaste-looking mouth, from floor to ceiling, lined, or rather papered, with a glistening white membrane, glossy as bridal satins. But come out now, and look at this portentous lower jaw, which seems like the long, narrow lid of an immense snuff-box, with a hinge at one end instead of one side. If you pry it up, so as to get it overhead, and expose its rows of teeth, it seems a terrific portcullis, and such, alas, it proves to many a poor white in the fishery, upon whom these spikes fall with impaling force. But far more terrible is it to behold when fathoms down in the sea 
you see some sulky whale floating there suspended with his prodigious jaw some fifteen feet long hanging straight down at right angles with his body for all the world like a ship's jim boom this whale is not dead he is only dispirited out of sorts perhaps hypochondriac and so supine that the hinges of his jaw have relaxed, leaving him there in that ungainly sort of plight, a reproach to all his tribe, who must, no doubt, imprecate locked jaws upon him. In most cases, this lower jaw, being easily unhinged by a practiced artist, is disengaged and hoisted on deck for the purpose of extracting the ivory teeth, and furnishing a supply of that hard white whalebone with which the fishermen fashion all sorts of curious articles, including canes, umbrella stocks, and handles to riding whips. With a long, weary hoist, the jaw is dragged on board, as if it were an anchor. And when the proper time comes, some few days after the other work, Queequeg, Degu, and Tashtego being all accomplished dentists, are set to drawing teeth. With a keen cutting spade, Queequeg lances the gums. Then the jaw is lashed down to ring bolts, and a tackle being rigged from aloft, they drag out these teeth as Michigan oxen drag stumps of old oaks out of the wild woodlands. There are generally 42 teeth in all. In old whales, much worn down, but undecayed, nor filled after our artificial fashion. The jaw is afterwards sawn into slabs and piled away like joists for building houses. Chapter 75. The Right Whale's Head. Contrasted View. Crossing the deck, let us now have a good long look at the right whale's head. As in general shape, the noble sperm whale's head may be compared to a Roman war chariot, especially in front, where it is so broadly rounded. So, at a broad view, the right whale's head bears a rather inelegant resemblance to a gigantic galliot-toed shoe. Two hundred years ago, an old Dutch voyager likened its shape to that of a shoemaker's last. And in this same last, or shoe, that old woman of the nursery tale, with the swarming brood, might very comfortably be lodged, she and all her progeny. But as you come nearer to this great head, it begins to assume different aspects, according to your point of view. If you stand on its summit and look at these two F-shaped spout holes, you would take the whole head for an enormous bass viol and these spiracles, the apertures in its sounding board. Then again, if you fix your eye upon this strange, crested, comb-like incrustation on the top of the mass, this green, barnacled thing, which the Greenlanders call the crown, and the southern fishers the bonnet of the right whale, fixing your eyes solely on this, you would take the head for the trunk of some huge oak, with a bird's nest in its crotch. At any rate, when you watch those live crabs that nestle here on this bonnet, such an idea will be almost sure to occur to you, unless indeed your fancy has been fixed by the technical term crown, also bestowed upon it, in which case you will take great interest in thinking how this mighty monster is actually a diademed king of the sea, whose green crown has been put together for him in this marvelous manner. But if this whale be a king, he is a very sulky-looking fellow to grace a diadem. Look at that hanging lower lip. What a huge sulk and pout is there. A sulk and pout by carpenter's measurement about twenty feet long and five feet deep. A sulk and pout that will yield you some five hundred gallons of oil and more. A great pity now that this unfortunate whale should be hair-lipped. The fissure is about a foot across. Probably the mother, during an important interval, was sailing down the Peruvian coast when earthquakes caused the beach to gape, 
Over this lip, as over a slippery threshold, we now slide into the mouth. Upon my word, were I at Mackinac, I should take this to be the inside of an Indian wigwam. Good Lord, is this the road that Jonah went? The roof is about twelve feet high and runs to a pretty sharp angle, as if there were a regular ridge pole there, while these ribbed, arched, hairy sides present us with those wondrous, half-vertical, scimitar-shaped slats of whalebone, say three hundred on a side, which, depending from the upper part of the head or crown bone, form those Venetian blinds which have elsewhere been cursorily mentioned. The edges of these bones are fringed with hairy fibers, through which the right whale strains the water, and in those intricacies he retains the small fish. When open-mouthed, he goes through the seas of Brit in feeding time. In the central blinds of bones, as they stand in their natural order, there are certain curious marks, curves, hollows, and ridges, whereby some whalemen calculate the creature's age, as the age of an oak by its circular rings. Though the certainty of this criterion is far from demonstrable, yet it has the savor of an analogical probability. At any rate, if we yield to it, we must grant a far greater age to the right whale than at first glance will seem reasonable. In old times, there seemed to have prevailed the most curious fancies concerning these blinds. One voyager and purchase calls them the wondrous whiskers inside of the whale's mouth. Another, hog's bristles. A third old gentleman in Hakliut uses the following elegant language. There are about 250 fins growing on each side of his upper chop, which arch over his tongue on each side of his mouth. This reminds us that the right whale really has a sort of whisker, or rather a mustache, consisting of a few scattered white hairs on the upper part of the outer end of the lower jaw. Sometimes these tufts impart a rather brigandish expression to his otherwise solemn countenance. As everyone knows, these same hogs bristles, fins, whiskers, blinds, or whatever you please, furnish to the ladies their busks and other stiffening contrivances. But in this particular, the demand has long been on the decline. It was in Queen Anne's time that the bone was in its glory, the farthingale being then all the fashion. And as those ancient dames moved about gaily, though in the jaws of the whale, as you may say, even so, in a shower with the like thoughtlessness, do we nowadays fly under the same jaws for protection, the umbrella being a tent spread over the same bone. But now forget all about blinds and whiskers for a moment, and, standing in the right whale's mouth, look around you afresh. Seeing all these colonnades of bones so methodically ranged about, would you not think you were inside the great Harlem organ, and gazing upon its thousand pipes? For a carpet to the organ, we have a rug of the softest turkey, the tongue, which is glued, as it were, to the floor of the mouth. It is very fat and tender, and apt to tear in pieces in hoisting it on the deck. This particular tongue now before us, at a passing glance, I should say it was a six-barreler. That is, it will yield you about that amount of oil. Ere this, you must have plainly seen the truth of what I started with that the sperm whale and the right whale have almost entirely different heads. To sum up, then, in the right whales there is no great well of sperm, no ivory teeth at all, no long, slender mandible of a lower jaw, like the sperm whales. Nor in the sperm whale are there any of those blinds of bone, no huge lower lip, and scarcely anything of a tongue. Again, the right whale has two external spout holes, the sperm whale only one. Look to your last now on these venerable hooded heads while they yet lie together, for one will soon sink 
unrecorded in the sea. The other will not be very long in following. Can you catch the expression of the sperm whales there? It is the same he died with. Only some of the longer wrinkles in the forehead seem now faded away. I think his broad brow to be full of a prairie-like placidity, born of a speculative indifference as to death. But mark the other head's expression. See that amazing lower lip, pressed by accident against the vessel's side, so as firmly to embrace the jaw? Does not this whole head seem to speak of an enormous practical resolution in facing death? This right whale I take to have been a stoic, the sperm whale a Platonian, who might have taken up Spinoza in his latter years. Chapter 76 The Battering Ram Ere quitting for the nonce the sperm whale's head, I would have you, as a sensible physiologist, simply, particularly, remark its front aspect, in all its complicated collectedness. I would have you investigate it now with the sole view of forming to yourself some unexaggerated, intelligent estimate of whatever battering ram power may be lodged there. Here is a vital point for you must either satisfactorily settle in this manner with yourself, or forever remain an infidel as to one of the most appalling, but not the less true events, perhaps anywhere to be found in all recorded history. You observe that in the ordinary swimming position of the sperm whale, the front of his head presents an almost wholly vertical plane to the water. You observe that the lower part of that front slopes considerably backwards, so as to furnish more of a retreat for the long socket which receives the boom-like lower jaw. You observe that the mouth is entirely under the head, much in the same way, indeed, as though your own mouth were entirely under your chin. Moreover, you observe that the whale has no external nose, and that what nose he has, his spout hole, is on the top of his head. You observe that his eyes and ears are at the sides of his head, nearly one-third of his entire length from the front. Wherefore, you must now have perceived that the front of the sperm whale's head is a dead, blind wall, without a single organ or tender prominence of any sort whatsoever. Furthermore, you are now to consider that only in the extreme, lower, backward-sloping part of the front of the head is there the slightest vestige of bone. And not till you get near twenty feet from the forehead do you come to the full cranial development. So that this whole enormous boneless mass is as one wad. Finally, though, as will soon be revealed, its contents partly comprise the most delicate oil. Yet, you are now to be apprised of the nature of the substance which so impregnably invests all that apparent effeminacy. In some previous place, I have described to you how the blubber wraps the body of the whale, as the rind wraps an orange. Just so with the head. But with this difference, about the head this envelope, though not so thick, is of a boneless toughness, inestimable by any man who has not handled it. The severest pointed harpoon, the sharpest lance darted by the strongest human arm, impotently rebounds from it. It is as though the forehead of the sperm whale were paved with horses' hooves. I do not think that any sensation lurks in it. Bethink yourself also of another thing. When two large, loaded Indiamen chance to crowd and crush towards each other in the docks, what do the sailors do? They do not suspend between them, at the point of coming contact, any merely hard substance, like iron or wood. No, they hold there a large, round wad of tow and cork, enveloped in the thickest and toughest of oxhide. That, bravely and uninjured, takes the jam which would have snapped all their oaken handspikes and iron crowbars. 
By itself, this sufficiently illustrates the obvious fact I drive at. But supplementary to this, it has hypothetically occurred to me that as ordinary fish possess what is called a swimming bladder in them, capable, at will, of distension or contraction, and as the sperm whale, as far as I know, has no such provision in him, considering, too, the otherwise inexplicable manner in which he now depresses his head altogether beneath the surface, and anon swims with it high elevated out of the water, considering the unobstructed elasticity of its envelope, considering the unique interior of his head, it has hypothetically occurred to me, I say, that those mystical lung-celled honeycombs there may possibly have some hitherto unknown and unsuspected connection with the outer air, so as to be susceptible to atmospheric distension and contraction. If this be so, fancy the irresistibleness of that might, to which the most impalpable and destructive of all elements contributes. Now mark. Unerringly impelling this dead, impregnable, uninjurable wall and this most buoyant thing within, there swims behind it all a mass of tremendous life, only to be adequately estimated as piled wood is by the cord, and all obedient to one volition as the smallest insect. So that when I shall hereafter detail to you all the specialties and concentrations of potency everywhere lurking in this expansive monster, when I shall show you some of his more inconsiderable braining feats, I trust you will have renounced all ignorant incredulity and be ready to abide by this, that though the sperm whale stove a passage through the isthmus of Darien and mix the Atlantic with the Pacific, you would not elevate one hair of your eyebrow. For unless you own the whale... You are but a provincial and sentimentalist in truth. But clear truth is a thing for salamander giants only to encounter. How small the chances for the provincials then? What befell the weakling youth lifting the dread goddess's veil at Laïs? Chapter 77 the Great Heidelberg Tun. Now comes the bailing of the case. But to comprehend it aright, you must know something of the curious internal structure of the thing operated upon. Regarding the sperm whale's head as a solid oblong, you may, on an inclined plane, sideways divide it into two coins, whereof the lower is the bony structure, forming the cranium and jaws, and the upper an unctuous mass wholly free from bones, its broad forward end forming the expanded vertical apparent forehead of the whale. At the middle of the forehead, horizontally subdivide this upper coin, and then you have two almost equal parts, which before were naturally divided by an internal wall of a thick, tendinous substance. Coin is not a Euclidean term. It belongs to the pure nautical mathematics. I know not that it has been defined before. A coin is a solid which differs from a wedge in having its sharp end formed by the steep inclination of one side instead of the mutual tapering of both sides, called the junk, is one immense honeycomb of oil formed by the crossing and recrossing into 10,000 infiltrated cells of tough elastic white fibers throughout its whole extent. The upper part, known as the case, may be regarded as the great Heidelberg ton of the sperm whale. And as that famous great tierce is mystically carved in front, so the whale's vast plated forehead forms an innumerable strange devices for the emblematical adornment of his wondrous ton. Moreover, as that of Heidelberg was always replenished with the most excellent of the wines of the Rhenish Valley, so the ton of the whale contains by the most precious of all his oily vintages, namely the highly prized spermaceti 
in its absolutely pure, limpid, and odiferous state. Nor is this precious substance found unalloyed in any other part of the creature. Though in life it remains perfectly fluid, yet upon exposure to the air after death, it soon begins to concrete, sending forth beautiful crystalline shoots as when the first thin delicate ice is just forming in water. A large whale's case generally yields about 500 gallons of sperm, though from unavoidable circumstances, considerable of it is spilled, leaks, and dribbles away, or is otherwise irrevocably lost in the ticklish business of securing what you can. I know not with what fine and costly material the Heidelberg tun was coated within, but in superlative richness that coating could not possibly have compared with the silken pearl-colored membrane like the line of a fine pelisse forming the intersurface of the sperm whale's case. It will have been seen that the Heidelberg ton of the sperm whale embraces the entire length of the entire top of the head, and since, as has been elsewhere set forth, the head embraces one-third of the whole length of the creature, then setting that length down at 80 feet for a good-sized whale, you have more than 26 feet for the depth of the ton, when it is lengthwise hoisted up and down against a ship's side. As in decapitating the whale, the operator's instrument is brought close to the spot where an entrance is subsequently forced into the spermaceti magazine. He has, therefore, to be uncommonly heedful, lest a careless, untimely stroke should invade the sanctuary and wastingly let out its invaluable contents. It is this decapitated end of the head, also, which is at last elevated out of the water and retained in that position by the enormous cutting tackles whose hempen combinations on one side make quite a wilderness of ropes in that quarter. Thus much being said, attend now, I pray you, to that marvelous and, in this particular instant, almost fatal operation whereby the sperm whale's great Heidelberg ton is tapped. Chapter 78 Cistern and Buckets Nimble as a cat, Tashtego mounts aloft and without altering his erect posture, runs straight out upon the overhanging main yard arm to the part where it exactly projects over the hoisted ton. He has carried with him a light tackle called a whip, consisting of only two parts, traveling through a single sheaved block. Securing this block so that it hangs down from the yard arm, he swings one end of the rope till it is caught and firmly held by a hand on deck. Then, hand over hand, down the other part, the Indian drops through the air, till dexterously he lands on the summit of the head. There, still high elevated above the rest of the company to whom he vivaciously cries, he seems some Turkish muezzin calling the good people to prayers from the top of a tower. A short-handled sharp spade being sent up to him, he diligently searches for the proper place to begin breaking into the ton. In this business he proceeds very heedfully, like a treasure hunter in some old house, sounding the walls to find where the gold is masoned in. By the time this cautious search is over, a stout iron-bound bucket, precisely like a well bucket, has been attached to one end of the whip while the other end, being stretched across the deck, is held there by two or three alert hands. These last now hoist the bucket within grasp of the Indian, to whom another person has reached up a very long pole. Inserting this pole into the bucket, Tashtego downward guides the bucket into the ton, till it entirely disappears. Then, giving the word to the seaman at the whip, comes up the bucket again, all bubbling like a dairymaid's pail of new milk. Carefully lowered from its height, the full-freighted vessel is caught by an appointed hand and quickly emptied into a large tub. Then, remounting aloft, 
It again goes through the same round until the deep cistern will yield no more. Towards the end, Tashtego has to ram his long pole harder and harder and deeper and deeper into the tun until some twenty feet of the pole have gone down. Now the people of the Pequod had been bailing some time in this way. Several tubs had been filled with the fragrant sperm, when all at once a queer accident happened. Whether it was that Tashtego, that wild Indian, was so heedless and reckless as to let go for a moment his one-handed hold on the great cabled tackles suspending the head, or whether the place where he stood was so treacherous and oozy, or whether the evil one himself would have it to fall out so, without stating his particular reasons, how it was exactly, there is no telling now. But on a sudden, as the eighteenth or nineteenth bucket came sucklingly up, oh my God, poor Tashtego! Like the twin reciprocating bucket in a veritable well, dropped head foremost down into this great ton of Heidelberg, and with a horrible, oily gurgling, went clean out of sight. Man overboard, cried Daegu, who amid the general consternation first came to his senses. Swing the bucket this way, and putting one foot into it, so as the better to secure his slippery handhold on the whip itself, the hoisters ran him high up to the top of the head, almost before Tashtego could have reached its interior bottom. Meantime, there was a terrible tumult. Looking over the side, they saw the before lifeless head throbbing and heaving just below the surface of the sea, as if that moment seized with some momentous idea, whereas it was only the poor Indian unconsciously revealing by those struggles the perilous depth to which he had sunk. At this instant, while Daegu, on the summit of the head, was clearing the whip, which had somehow got foul of the great cutting tackles, a sharp cracking noise was heard, and to the unspeakable horror of all, one of the two enormous hooks suspending the head tore out, and with a vast vibration, the enormous mass sideways swung, till the drunk ship reeled and shook as if smitten by an iceberg. The one remaining hook, upon which the entire strain now depended, seemed every instant to be on the point of giving way, an event still more likely from the violent motions of the head. Come down, come down, yelled the seaman to Daegu, but with one hand holding on to the heavy tackles, so that if the head should drop, he would still remain suspended. The negro, having cleared the foul line, rammed down the bucket into the now collapsed well, meaning that the buried harpooner should grasp it and so be hoisted out. In heaven's name, man, cried Stubb, are you ramming home a cartridge there? Avast! How will that help him? Jamming that iron-bound bucket on the top of his head? Avast, will ye? Stand clear of the tackle, cried a voice like the bursting of a rocket. Almost in the same instant, with a thunder boom, the enormous mass dropped into the sea, like Niagara's table rock into the whirlpool. The suddenly relieved hull rolled away from it to far down her glittering copper, and all caught their breath as half-swinging, now over the sailors' heads and now over the water, Daegu, through a thick mist of spray, was dimly beheld clinging to the pendulous tackles, while poor, buried-alive Tashtego was sinking utterly down to the bottom of the sea. But hardly had the blinding vapor cleared away when a naked figure with a boarding sword in its hand was for one swift moment seen hovering over the bulwarks. The next, a loud splash announced that my brave Queequeg had dived to the rescue. One packed rush was made to the side, and every eye counted every ripple, as moment followed moment, and no sign of either the sinker or the diver could be seen. Some hands now jumped into a boat alongside and pushed a little off from the ship. Ha-ha! cried Daegu all at once from his now quiet, swinging perch overhead. And looking further off from the side, we saw an arm thrust upright from the blue waves 
a sight strange to see as an arm thrust forth from the grass over a grave. Both! Both! It is both! cried Daegu again with a joyful shout, and soon after, Queequeg was seen boldly striking out with one hand and with the other clutching the long hair of the Indian. Drawn into the waiting boat, they were quickly brought to the deck, but Tashtego was long in coming too, and Queequeg did not look very brisk. Now, how had this noble rescue been accomplished? Why, diving after the slowly descending head, Queequeg, with his keen sword, had made side lunges near its bottom, so as to scuttle a large hole there. Then, dropping his sword, had thrust his long arm far inwards and upwards, and so hauled out poor Tash by the head. He averred that upon first thrusting in for him, a leg was presented. But well knowing that that was not as ought to be, and might occasion great trouble, he had thrust back the leg, and by a dexterous heave and toss, had wrought a somerset upon the Indian, so that with the next trial he came forth in the good old way, head foremost. As for the great head itself, that was doing as well as could be expected. And thus... Through the courage and great skill and obstetrics of Queequeg, the deliverance, or rather delivery, of Tashtego was successfully accomplished in the teeth, too, of the most untoward and apparently hopeless impediments, which is a lesson by no means to be forgotten. Midwifery should be taught in the same course with fencing and boxing, riding and rowing. I know that this queer adventure of the gay headers will be sure to seem incredible to some landsmen, though they themselves may have either seen or heard of someone's falling into a cistern ashore, an accident which not seldom happens, and with much less reason, too, than the Indians, considering the exceeding slipperiness of the curb of the sperm whale's well. But peradventure, it may be sagaciously urged, How is this? We thought the tissued, infiltrated head of the sperm whale was the lightest and most corky part about him, and yet thou makest it sink in an element of a far greater specific gravity than itself. We have thee there. Not at all, but I have ye. For at the time poor Tash fell in, the case had been nearly emptied of its lighter contents, leaving little but the dense tenderness wall of the well, a double-welded hammered substance, as I have before said, and a lump of which sinks in it like lead almost. But the tendency to rapid sinking in this substance was in the present instance materially counteracted by the other parts of the head remaining undetached from it so that it sank very slowly and deliberately indeed, affording Queequeg a fair chance for performing his agile obstetrics on the run, as you may say. Yes, it was a running delivery, so it was. Now, had Tashtego perished in that head, it had been a very precious perishing, smothered in the very whitest and daintiest of fragrant spermaceti, coffined, hearsed, and tombed in the inner chamber and sanctum sanctorum of the whale. Only one sweeter end can readily be recalled, the delicious death of an Ohio honey hunter, who, seeking honey in the crotch of a hollow tree, found such exceeding store of it that, leaning too far over, it sucked him in, so that he died embalmed. How many, think ye, have likewise fallen into Plato's honey head and sweetly perished there. Chapter 79 The Prairie To scan the lines of his face or feel the bumps on the head of this leviathan, this is a thing which no physiognomist or phrenologist has as yet undertaken. Such an enterprise would seem almost as hopeful as for Lavater to have scrutinized the wrinkles on the rock of Gibraltar 
or for Gaul to have mounted a ladder and manipulated the dome of the Pantheon. Still, in that famous work of his, Lavater not only treats of the various faces of men, but also attentively studies the faces of horses, birds, serpents, and fish, and dwells in detail upon the modifications of expression discernible therein. Nor have Gaul and his disciple Spurzheim failed to throw out some hints touching the phrenological characteristics of other beings than man. Therefore, though I am but ill-qualified for a pioneer, in the application of these two semi-sciences to the whale, I will do my endeavor. I try all things. I achieve what I can. Physiognomically regarded, the sperm whale is an anomalous creature. He has no proper nose, and since the nose is the central and most conspicuous of the features, and since it perhaps most modifies and finally controls their combined expression, hence it would seem that its entire absence as an external appendage must very largely affect the countenance of the whale. For as in landscape gardening, a spire, cupola, monument, or other tower of some sort is deemed almost indispensable to the completion of the scene, so no face can be physiognomically in keeping with the elevated open-work belfry of the nose. Dash the nose from Phidias marble Jove, and what a sorry remainder! Nevertheless, Leviathan is of so mighty a magnitude, all his proportions are so stately, that the same deficiency which in the sculptured Jove were hideous, in him is no blemish at all. Nay, it is an added grandeur. A nose to the whale would have been impertinent. As on your physiognomical voyage, you sail around his vast head in your jolly boat, your noble conceptions of him are never insulted by the reflection that he has nose to be pulled. A pestilent conceit, which so often will insist upon obtruding even when beholding the mightiest royal beetle on his throne. In some particulars, perhaps, the most imposing physiognomical view to be had of the sperm whale is that of the full front of his head. This aspect is sublime. In thought, a fine human brow is like the east when troubled with the morning. In the repose of the pasture, the curled brow of the bull has a touch of the grand in it. Pushing heavy cannon up mountain defiles, the elephant's brow is majestic. Human or animal, the mystical brow is that great golden seal affixed by the German emperors to their decrees. It signifies, God, done this day by my hand. But in most creatures, nay, in man himself, very often the brow is but a mere strip of alpine land lying along the snow line. Few are the foreheads which, like Shakespeare's or Melanchthon's, rise so high and descend so low that the eyes themselves seemed clear, eternal, tideless mountain lakes. And all above them in the forehead's wrinkles, you seem to track the antlered thoughts descending there to drink, as the highland hunters track the snow prints of the deer. But in the great sperm whale, this high and mighty godlike dignity inherent in the brow is so immensely amplified that gazing on it, in that full front view, you feel the deity and the dread powers more forcibly than in beholding any other object in living nature. For you see no one point precisely. Not one distinct feature is revealed. No nose, eyes, ears, or mouth. No face. He has none proper. Nothing but that one broad firmament of a forehead, pleated with riddles dumbly lowering with the doom of boats and ships and men. Nor, in profile, does this wondrous brow diminish. Though that way viewed, its grandeur does not domineer upon you so. In profile, 
you plainly perceive that horizontal semicrescentic depression in the forehead's middle, which, in man, is Lavater's mark of genius. But how? Genius in the sperm whale? Has the sperm whale ever written a book, spoken a speech? No, his great genius is declared in his doing nothing particular to prove it. It is moreover declared in his pyramidical silence. And this reminds me that had the great sperm whale been known to the young Orient world, he would have been deified by their child Magian thoughts. They deified the crocodile of the Nile because the crocodile is tongueless. And the sperm whale has no tongue, or at least it is so exceedingly small as to be incapable of protrusion. If hereafter any highly cultured, poetical nation shall lure back to their birthright the merry mayday gods of old and livingly enthrone them again in the now egotistical sky, in the now unhaunted hill, then be sure, exalted to Jove's high seat, the great sperm whale shall lord it. Champollion deciphered the wrinkled granite hieroglyphics. But there is no Champollion to decipher the Egypt of every man's and every being's face. Physiognomy, like every other human science, is but a passing fable. If then, Sir William Jones, who read in thirty languages, could not read the simplest peasant's face in its profounder and more subtle meanings, how may unlettered Ishmael hope to read the awful Chaldee of the sperm whale's brow? I but put that brow before you. Read it if you can. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time as Ishmael describes more about the head, the face, and the majesty of the great sperm whale.